Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, August 7th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, or on inquiringshow.tumblr.com, or you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This episode of Inquiring Minds is also sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of their new course, Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. I've been looking forward to this week's interview for a long time. Elizabeth Helmuth Margulis shares both of my main interests, music and cognitive neuroscience, and she also happens to be very good at choosing research topics that anyone can relate to. We first met at SciFu, which is a little conference at the Google headquarters about a year ago, where I first learned about her work on the role that repetition plays in music. And so I was delighted to catch up with her at the biannual Society for Music Perception and Cognition conference this week in Nashville, Tennessee. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, what was it this week that caught your eye, Kishore? We've talked a lot about drones recently on the show. We've talked about their applications to delivery. We've talked about their applications um, in the wider world of technology. But how about a medical application? That we have not talked about. So think about the idea of drones helping deliver samples. Uh, Because last October, a man in the Netherlands actually created an ambulance drone that flew a defibrillator uh, to victim of a heart attack. Um, In March of just this year, the Mayo Clinic has begun investigating drones for medical applications, including delivering uh, medical equipment to patients in remote 
hard to access areas. And now researchers at Johns Hopkins believe they've done some tests that show that drones can actually deliver blood samples on demand in areas up to about 100 kilometers in distance with flights you know, ranging from 20 to 40 minutes. And the flights had basically no negative impact whatsoever on the sample. Now, these flights were done in the U.S. in Baltimore near Johns Hopkins under the current FAA guidelines, which means the drones couldn't actually go above 400 feet, and they had to stay within the line of sight of the operator of the drone, which seems to kind of defeat the purpose in my mind. But the idea they are sort of positioning is that, hey, now we can go to uh, rural areas or uh, third world areas where transportation to and from sites can be treacherous at times. And now we have drones actually handle the delivery. I mean, I can certainly see applications of this in places like Africa, where, you know, you have vast distances or hard to travel. Um, and it's, you know, of critical importance to get medical supplies there and back. But, you know, so when I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it would look like in Baltimore when this drone is flying, is there is there like literally somebody in a car you know, following it around or, and, and also the drone's got to be a lot bigger than the kind of drone that we flew with DJI on our drone show. Cause I can't imagine that could hold any kind of weight. Do you know anything about those kinds of, um, specifications? So the Hopkins study used a fixed wing drone, which is more like a small RC hobby aircraft kind of model of a drone, as opposed to the helicopter model that we flew. Uh, so it's a little bit bigger, but it's not a ton bigger. The line of sight thing is, uh, I can't imagine people will be racing through the streets of Baltimore in a car piloting a drone above them as an efficient way of getting the sample anywhere. But, uh, I mean, I, I think what the Hopkins say showed is that it doesn't have any effect on the sample, but we're not going to see this being used in any sort of urban environment. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever, given the restrictions in place. And even this idea that it opens up possibilities in rural settings or even Africa, as you suggest, I'm pretty skeptical of it. Uh, because unless you automate the delivery where there need there doesn't need to be a human involved whatsoever, I don't actually see the value. And with those recent stories that have come out of people shooting down drones they've seen come over their land, maybe not the best way to transport blood samples. Yeah, or anything even more valuable like an organ. That would be sad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Good news for Amazon, though. <laughs> yeah. There's somebody researching it. I mean, maybe this is all just a ploy for Amazon to, you know, show that their their technology is, is useful. And, you know, we adopt it. We set some regulations and all of a sudden all of your packages are coming in by drone. I, I guess if you can order, you know, type O blood with Amazon Prime, all the better. <laughs> <laughs> Did anything catch your eye in the news this yeah, week? Yeah, so if I asked you right now to sit down and take a math test, and then I let you grade it yourself, and then I asked you what you got, would you be completely honest with me? Would you have any oversight in this? or nope, is this I would have no idea. Completely on your recognizance. I, you, you would then tear it up, put it through a shredder. I would have no idea. Oh, then I would most assuredly not tell you the exact truth. (laughs) (laughs) And you're not alone. Uh, There's a wealth of research by behavioral economists, much of it by Dan Ariely and his colleagues, that shows that most people will actually fudge the numbers at least a little bit. Um, And just how much they fudge depends on a bunch of different things, including whether they see someone else do it, the likelihood of getting caught, etc., 
Um, and you can actually make people more honest pretty easily just by doing things like asking them to sign a piece of paper promising not to cheat. And you know, apparently it works. So these are really cool studies. And Dan does a great job of discussing them and their implications in his book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, which is one of my favorite books. But a study that caught my eye this week used his same task, you know, giving, assigning a math test to a bunch of people, asking them to grade it themselves and then report their grades, and then, you know, seeing the extent to which they actually cheat on that reporting. But it actually involved the role of hormones in their behavior. So the question was, do L levels of certain hormones, in this case, testosterone and the stress hormone cortisol, correlate with a person's choices of whether or not to behave ethically. And the findings of the study suggest that, in fact, if your cortisol and testosterone levels are elevated, you are more likely to fudge the numbers to cheat than to be honest. Wait, what symptom does it does the elevated cortisol levels really relate to that would encourage me to cheat? Well, here's what the authors of the study have suggested. They think that you know, cortisol is an indicator of how stressed you feel. It's one, one indicator, right? So when your body is stressed, it releases cortisol. And that's what they're measuring, these elevated levels of cortisol. So if you're stressed, maybe that's the reason you cheat. Maybe it's it's harder to resist the temptation. Or, you know, maybe you feel that this is something that you need to do to exert control over your environment. Um, and then they argue that Stress gives you the reason, but testosterone gives you the courage. <laughs> that it's that, you know, increase in, it will increase levels of, level of testosterone that, um, you know, essentially puts the, puts the nail on the coffin and, and, and makes you cheat or at least encourages you to cheat. I still don't quite follow why I, I can understand under the condition that I'm stressed out. I'm more likely to to make a decision that isn't consistent with what I do in a regular day. But how does that affect my sort of morality, which is what we're talking about here? Because I, when I hear the word cheating, I think about my moral compass. Uh-huh. And that's why I think this is really interesting. You know, I, I think Dan's work shows us that often the kinds of choices that we think we're making, you know, we're not always making them for the, at least not for the reasons that we think we are. And here's just another way that uh, science is showing that there are certain environmental factors that will change the way you behave from an ethical point of view. So oftentimes we make these decisions, we think we are doing them conscientiously and rationally. Um, but here's another piece of evidence that in fact, uh, what's happening in our body has a big effect on what it is that we're actually doing. I wonder what kind of application this has towards how uh, math is math tests are administered at, at school if we're have stressed out kids, they're more likely to um, feel a certain way or, or give them a propensity to cheat. Well, it doesn't. Uh, given yeah, this I scenario. Mean, so the cheating here is 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 cheating in a way in which the students didn't expect to get caught. Right? They're just reporting their you know test scores, um, and so it's unclear whether if there was a chance of getting caught, people would still behave this way. I think that's still kind of up in the air. Um, and and secondly, I I don't know that the performance of the students changed under these conditions. I mean, that's probably a whole separate study and there's probably work out there about whether, you know, you know, when you're stressed, do you actually perform more poorly? Um, the question here was just, do you, I think really it's about resisting temptation. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we had that great, um, interview with Tracy Mann on, on willpower and resisting the temptation to eat a cookie over and over and over and over again. Uh, and I think here's another example where, 
you know, we have, we have these temptations to be a little bit dishonest in our lives all the time. And if you're feeling stressed or, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling some, you know, something that, that, that willpower goes down. But, but I think what they're saying is that it has to come in combination with an increase in testosterone. But that's, that's sort of the side of it that I think we still lack a, a, a good explanation for, you know, how that's working in terms of mechanisms. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Elizabeth Helmuth Margulis. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off their new series, Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. In 12 half-hour episodes, the series by Professor Lonnie A. Gamble, who's the co-director of the Sustainable Living Program at Maharishi University of Management, will teach you sustainable living practices designed to help you reduce your home's energy consumption by 75% or more and enjoy the same or better service heat your home without fossil fuels and produce enough clean energy to contribute back to the grid or leave it all together, reduce and potentially eliminate your water bill, grow your own pesticide-free fruits, vegetables, and herbs year-round, and make effective cleaning products at home that are safer and cheaper than anything you can buy at the store. This sounds like it is a course that's built specifically for my husband, who's really interested in sustainable living. So this special offer of 80% off Fundamentals of Sustainable Living is only valid for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more about this special offer or any of the 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Building a website can be tough. And even if you do know your way around coding, creating something that looks good and works well is a time-consuming affair. Whether it's for a business site, a portfolio, a restaurant, or whatever else, in this day and age, you probably need one anyway. Well, lucky for us, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. Squarespace provides simple, powerful, and beautiful websites that look professionally designed regardless of the skill level of the person who's doing them. No coding required. Not only does Squarespace provide you with intuitive and easy-to-use tools to create your own website, Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. And you know you can trust in Squarespace for your website needs when millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world trust them too. Seriously, you can't beat the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. Squarespace gives you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website for only $8 a month. You can even get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. So what are you waiting for? Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code MINDS to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Inquiring Minds. We thank Squarespace for their support of Inquiring Minds. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Elizabeth Helmuth Margulis, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Indre. It's great to be here. And just to give our listeners a little bit of context, I want to let them know that we are catching up at the 2015 Society for Music Perception and Cognition Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. So you might be able to hear some cicadas, a little bit of traffic noise. We are sitting outside. Some country music in background, I don't know. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. So I wanted to start the conversation by um, highlighting something that we both have in common, which is that we come to music as passionate musicians first. So tell me about your background in music performance. So I grew up uh, playing the piano. Um, it was really all I wanted to do. I ended up going to conservatory. I went to Peabody Conservatory of Music and uh, studied piano. So that's definitely my first love. 
And what made you decide that you wanted to leave the stage for academia? So I had a lot of experiences at conservatory that will be familiar to musicians, I suppose, where you know you get really curious about what's happening, how you know the experiences you're having are even possible, and what gives rise to them. And uh, within the conservatory framework, there often aren't a lot of answers, and sort of people would maybe reference tradition and say, you know, because Schnabel did it that way, or <laughs> I don't know. So uh, my piano teacher actually told him Peabody was a part of Johns Hopkins University. And um, she said, no, you can't get on the bus, go down to Johns Hopkins and take a class because you need to be practicing. So of course, I mean, there's a limited way to rebel when you're a student in a music conservatory. And this seemed like a good opportunity. I got on the bus and went down. I took a class called Minds, Brains, and Computers. And it was really when I was exposed to the sort of conceptual framework of cognitive science that I thought, wow, this is maybe a kind of set of methodologies and perspectives that can help answer some of these questions. So that tells us a lot about concert pianists, too, that rebelling is like taking a class <laughs> across campus about brains. It's so sad. If I knew now, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I would have had a lot more fun, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that sort of uh, echoes my journey a little bit as well in this, in, from the perspective that when I was doing my master's in music, I realized that there were a lot of superstitions among musicians, among music teachers, that science really can speak to and that, you know, by bringing science to the conservatory, we can actually make changes in the way that people learn music and the way that they appreciate music and the way that they experience music. So tell me a little bit about how you got from, you know, leaving Peabody. Was that, did you start doing research right there? Did you, you know, did you do something else in between? How did you go from performing to doing research? So during, I, I finished out my undergrad at Peabody in piano performance, um, but I ended up taking a lot of classes, uh, contrary to, you know, teacher's wishes, and reading a lot of books, doing a lot of independent reading, and figuring out kind of where I wanted to be next. In fact, my, myself, like a lot of people in my field, we read uh, Gertel Escherbach. It was a very influential book at that time. And I, you know, wrote my passionate email to Douglas Hofstadter asking him what I should do. And, you know, he gave me wonderful advice. So I ended up um, finding Fred Lairdahl at Columbia, who was a composer who had um, ad adapted a lot of the thinking from generative linguistics to understand how music was put together and how musical systems functioned. And uh, so I went straight out of undergrad uh, there to work with him. So a lot of performers that I talk to tend to look at music uh, perception and cognition work as interesting, you know, intellectually, but really have no impact on how they perform. But what I really enjoyed about your work is that actually, I think it really can change the way people approach their performance. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of that work. Um, and first, I wanted to start with um, the experience of the listener at a concert hall. And so you've got one study on the effect of program notes. That is, you know, when you are told a little bit something about a piece that you read, you know, before you, you hear the piece, this is very common in symphony halls, for example, where let's say you're, you know, going to hear Beethoven's fifth, um, the, either the resident, uh, uh, music, um, musicologist at the symphony has written some, you know, erudite uh, word essay on what you're going to hear, or it's the conductor is going to talk about his interpretation. Um, and, you know, we all judiciously read these program notes before we listen to the symphony. Um, so tell me a little bit about that work. Well, what struck me there was that when people go to like a Rolling Stones concert or they, you know, go down to the local bar and hear somebody, I mean, think about what it would be like if somebody handed you 
program notes about what you're going to hear. And, you know, I thought, wow, um, there's, there's sort of almost an implicit message maybe in a program note that's, you know, oh, sweetie, you need some help before you can, you know, deal with what we're, we're going to be bringing. And, um, so I just, I just wondered whether, uh, you know, there was more nuance to this practice than we might have assumed. So I uh, had people who are not formally trained in music, just kind of regular music listeners, come in and listen to a number of excerpts from Beethoven's string quartets. And I could either give them a short description beforehand or withhold a short description. And then it was a really simple study. I just asked them how much they enjoyed listening. And it turned out that the people who hadn't been given a note at all, you know, liked listening to the string quartets better. And it's not, that's not to say that information isn't ultimately helpful, right? It might just mean in that moment that it's sort of hard to make sense of this whole story you've heard in conjunction with this new music you're listening to. You know, maybe if you got the story and listened to the music and listened to it several times, maybe over time it would be helpful. And, you know, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's interesting to think about. I mean, that's just an example of the, the kind of thing you can do to sort of question best practices maybe in, uh, you know, concert hall management. I don't know. And I think one of the mistakes that those of us who are interested in performing classical music make is that, you know, the audience is dwindling or the people aren't, my friends aren't coming to my show because they don't really understand the music. And if I could just show them how they, you know, what, what is important about the music and why I think it's exciting, then maybe they would come. But I think what your study is showing is that how you do that is really critically important. So if you make them feel stupid <laughs> in the way that some program notes can, um, that maybe actually they enjoy it less. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, that brings me to another uh, kind of way of uh, welcoming people into the world of classical music. And that just has to do with um, giving people a chance to listen, you know, uh, exposing them to music. And uh, the idea is that across that kind of period of enculturation, when you're getting a chance to listen, you kind of figure out where things are for yourself and develop your own passion. Um, doesn't necessarily need a lot of explicit uh, scaffolding necessarily. I mean. So and and that really brings me to one movement that started in San Francisco although I see you know parts of, or versions of it popping up everywhere now which is this grassroots classical movement uh classical music movement where you know people are bringing the string quartet into bars and cafes um it from my understanding, it started with a group called Classical Revolution in San Francisco, where they just started playing in, in bars and, you know, these other, uh, you know, odd spaces for free for people just jamming. And it's grown into a movement in which there are classical revolution offshoots all over the world. And people are really excited about hearing, you know, Beethoven string quartets in a bar and not having to read program notes beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just so wonderful. And there, there are a lot of opportunities for science and research to kind of interact with some of these new practices and, you know, trying to make sense of them and understand what the underlying mechanisms are and why certain things are working and certain things aren't. But there was a really interesting follow-up study that your student presented today at the conference, which really gets at the question of what influences people's ratings of whether or not they like a piece of music. And uh, let me say that this was the only talk at the conference that started out with a study of wine. <laughs> so I'm going to let you take over for there and tell our listeners why you thought that how we um, consume wine and appreciate wine might have an impact on how we listen to music. 
So, you know, drinking wine is uh, a sensory experience, right? We do for pleasure. And uh, we might listen to music in the same way, right, for, uh, for pleasure and for the kind of sensory qualities. And so we, we thought that there might be some intriguing overlap between musical practices and the study by Plasman et al., where they had people taste wine. And the only thing that people knew about the wine was the price tag. So they'd say, you know, this will be a $10 bottle or this will be a $90 bottle. And um, often, in fact, the wine they were tasting was from the exact same bottle. The only difference was the information they'd been given about the price. And not only did people report enjoying the $90 wine more than the wine that had been labeled $10, um, but they also uh, used neuroimaging to look at what was going on while they were having these experiences. And you could just see all the pleasure centers lighting up in, um, you know, these ways when they were drinking the supposed $90 bottle that weren't happening when they were drinking the $10 bottle. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a case where this in- extrinsic information is really impacting not just the way people conceptualize their experience, but the actual sensory you know, level of pleasure. Uh, and th- that seemed really intriguing to us. So we went ahead and um, adapted that to music performances. We played people pairs of performances that could either be by a student or by a professional. And then we told them in advance whether they were listening to the professional or the student. Um, But the trick was that in about half the cases, we lied to them. <laughs> um, and in fact, sometimes we played them the same performance by the same student twice in a row and told them that one was a professional and one was a student. And um, as in the wine study, you know, we weren't looking at expert tasters or expert listeners. We were looking at, you know, just everyday regular listeners. And um, they were very susceptible to the information we gave them uh, before listening. So if we told them something was by a professional, they reported enjoying it more. And beyond that, since they were listening to performances in these pairs, uh, they tended to prefer the second performance, kind of regardless of whether it was by a professional or a student. So there was something there about the processing fluency. It's well known from other literatures where, you know, um, you've heard something before, so now you're kind of able to deal with it cognitively more successfully. And sometimes, you know, instead of people thinking, wow, I heard that before, so it's easy for me to (laughs) process, they think, wow, that is a great performance. I'm really enjoying that. That makes me feel awesome about myself. Um, So there was that familiarity effect. And then sort of underneath those two, you could see also some preference overall for the performance that was actually by the professional. So we're sort of this mix of intrinsic and extrinsic factors um, kind of conditioning their responses. So without any information, they would have preferred the second piece they heard over the first piece, and they would have preferred the professional over the student. But if they were told that the second piece was a professional, it, regardless of whether it was a professional or a student, they would show a strong preference for that piece. Is that correct? That's exactly right, yeah. So we actually did two studies, one study where we didn't prime people, where they, they just listened to the pairs of performances, and then another one where we um, you know, told them accurately or inaccurately that it was by a professional, and um, you could just see that exact manipulation that you're just characterizing. And in fact, there was another poster at the conference, too, by one of your colleagues at Peabody, <laughs> um, uh, where, which he labeled the prestige effect, where he had a similar study, except instead of c- calling one performance uh, by a professional or by a student, um, he actually told people that the composer of the piece was either someone very famous, like Beethoven or Mozart, or one of his less famous, one of their less famous contemporaries. And again, even professional music students claim that they enjoyed the piece by the more famous uh, composer than the less famous composer. 
Yeah, I think that's a really brilliant design, actually, because it's uh, very, very subtle, right? So, um, people, people, it's hard for participants to guess kind of what the experimenter is getting at. And so I think that's a really lovely design. So what does that tell us about our own experience with music? And how can uh, musicians or even listeners take this knowledge? And you know, how, how should it affect the way we approach music? I think sometimes, especially with classical music, we forget that our experiences with uh, music are situated in the real world and have all these kinds of social dimensions and cultural dimensions. You know, sometimes we kind of lapse into this formalist idea that it's, you know, however loud or soft each note was and high and low is like somehow programming us like a computer to have a particular response. And of course, there's some amount of that going on, sure. Um, but, you know, we can't, uh, there's no way of isolating that from the incredibly rich embedding, cultural embedding that um, the musical experience has. Uh, so I think conservatories especially, I don't know if you agree, I know you also have conservatory experience, um, but that model, that sort of formalist model is really dominant within those walls. And uh, it might help people connect to the larger world if our conceptualization of what's going on psychologically when we listen to music were broadened to encompass some of these uh, other forces. <laughs> I, you know, I think that especially in conservatories, musicians uh, worry that if they acknowledge that there are these effects that are psychological in terms of how people enjoy or rate a particular performance, then that somehow diminishes the expertise, right? That, you know, that there's something about formal music training that gives you knowledge that, you know, then is universal. Um, so that's been my experience. But, you know, I am hoping that some this work and, and work like it can start to um, change people's interaction with music. But I want to turn to um, some work of yours that I have um, stolen and use in talks all the time. <laughs> um, it's really fascinating work on repetition and the role that repetition has um, in terms of our understanding of what music is at its most fundamental and also how music is evocative. Um, so let's start with repetition. What was it that first got you interested in studying repetition in music? Yeah, I so I guess I felt for a long time like repetition was this elephant in the room that we're kind of pretending doesn't characterize music to the degree that it really does. And in fact, you know, you can look across the history of the way people talk about music and find them sort of trying to paper over what's going on and pretend say, oh, no, don't take the repeats. I know. And, uh, you know, because or this idea that maybe repeating yourself is kind of childish or or embarrassing or, you know, I don't know. And uh, I thought, you know what, it, it's, it can't possibly be that something that's a cultural universal, so there's no known culture that makes music where repetition isn't an important element. Um, it's just impossible that that's happening everywhere and, and that there isn't some, you know, real reason, perhaps some real psychological reason that... Uh, that it's so prevalent. Um, so that was the starting insight that made me want to go down this path. And in fact, Diana Deutsch, who's a giant in music cognition, um, has a wonderful illusion in which she demonstrates that you can turn just regular speech into music by repetition. And so I'd like to play uh, one of an excerpt from her CD of uh, music and sound illusions so that our, um, our audience can hear that. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. But they sometimes behave so strangely, they sometimes behave so strangely, sometimes behave so strangely, 
sometimes behave so strangely. 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 So strangely. So strangely. So strangely. So strangely. So just repeating a part of a phrase、um, makes it sound as if it's been sung. What do you think it is about、um, repetition that turns it into music? Yeah, this I mean, such a fascinating question. I think one of the things that happens across repeated listenings is that more and more. We kind of tend to mentally sing along with what we're listening to, so we can anticipate the note that's coming next.、Um, we get connected to the music in a way that sometimes can can prove powerful and, and overwhelming. Even、uh, there's some really interesting work by a Swedish psychologist called Alf Gabrielson, where he just documented thousands of people's peak experiences of music. So he just Went with a survey and asked people, you know, what was your most amazing experience of music ever? Describe it, and then he looked to see what commonalities might exist among all those responses. And、um, there's a key strand among a lot of them that had to do with sort of a sense of losing yourself or、uh, merging with the music, feeling like you are the music. And、uh, you know, I think th- there's a lot of complicated things going on to make an experience like that possible. And of course, you know. Most musical experiences are only pale, distant, you know, reflections of this ultimate kind of peak, kind of、uh, experience. But、um, I think that really one factor there is repetition. Is this idea that as you listen to something more and more,、um, you get connected to it and temporally oriented with it in a way that's very different on, than you do on first listening. And、uh, if our listeners are, are more、uh, interested in these ideas, you've written a book about this called On Repeat. But of course, your book isn't just filled with your opinions and thoughts about other people's work. You've done your own work to look at the effects of repetition. So there are a couple studies I wanted to talk about. One is one in which you、um, kind of、uh, changed the compositions of two very famous、uh, contemporary composers, Elliot Carter and Luciano Berrio. So.、Uh, Tell us about that study. Yeah, that study was perhaps a little obnoxious. So、um, I took some、uh, pieces by these real scions of、um, contemporary art music and、uh, played them again for the, for people who are not aficionados of this particular、uh, type style of music. And、um, I could play them in either their original form or in a form where I'd gone in. And digitally manipulated them. I'd gone in and、uh, chopped them up. I'd taken out a little bit and then reinserted it later, so that now this music that、uh, tended to avoid repetition in, in literal ways、um, would just, you know, say something and then say that thing again and then go on to a new thing and、uh, etc. And、uh, I simply asked people after each excerpt how much they enjoyed it, how interesting they found it, and whether it was more likely to have been composed by a human artist or randomly generated by a computer. And so, in all three of those dimensions,、um, there is very clear fact that they preferred the repetitive examples, which is,、um, you know, really shouldn't be the case because, you know, I'm a random person messing around with my computer program to add in some repetition, and you know, Carter and Barrio are, are total geniuses. So there's,、uh, you know.、Um, This this isn't really to say anything about how people who know a lot about Barrio and Carter enjoy them. Of course, that's a special kind of experience, different than the one I'm describing. But it does say, okay, if you've got some unfamiliar music, if you simply just add some brute force repetition, people can engage with it in a, a much richer way. And there's this argument that you make in your book that 
this repetition might signal intentionality. That is that if I say something again, I sort of intentionally meant to do that, that I have something that I'm trying to communicate or that I'm trying to express. And so that it makes people engage with the material in a different way. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more to expand on this idea of how repetition might signal an intention. Yeah, this is something we know that can happen in language where, you know, if I tell you something in jail, like if I say, uh, you know, look over there, you kind of look over there and you don't see much and you look back, I might say, look over there. <laughs> and when I say that again, what I mean is, no, you didn't get it the first time. There's really something you need to look at. It's it's a guy in cowboy boots playing the guitar. It's not. but <laughs> um, Yeah. So, so I, I mean that there's something you missed the first time I, I said it that you need to listen to again. Uh, and, you know, we can even see this in if we just repeat a word. So you know, if you want to blow your friend's mind. You can just sit down for 60 seconds and say the same word again and again and again. And uh, something happens where uh, you stop being able to access the what the word's actual meaning. And you start having this kind of trippy experience related to the actual component sounds in the word where, you know, you're listening extra hard to those. And it's really because you're done with this one level of meaning and you're really working hard to try to find some other level where something interesting is going on. And, you know, in speech, maybe that's not so useful, right? Because we, we don't really care that, uh, you know, umbrella has an M before a B. We don't really need to meditate on that for <laughs> extended periods of time. Um, but let's say you're listening to uh, jazz improvisation, right? Maybe there really is something subtle going on in some timbral, you know, uh, uh, movement of a string or some way you're vibrating around a note that really is where a lot of the musical meaning lies. And um, re repeating that a number of times can, can help a person get down to that level and start accessing it. So I teach a class at the Conservatory of Music called Training the Musical Brain. And the goal is to really try to look at research in science and neuroscience in particular and, and psychology to see what we can learn from that to make the, the musicians, the, the students better practicers. Ultimately, how can they be more efficient in the practice room? But what we start out with is a definition of music. And, you know, we start out with a standard, oh, it's organized sound or, you know, and, and I let the students generate it. And ultimately, we end up agreeing that there's a, a way of communicating something, whether it's an emotional expression or an idea, with music that is not possible with language. And it made me wonder if you've come across um, any studies of this, that somehow the repetition makes people listen to music in a way that tells them something, maybe it's implicit, maybe it's even you know subliminal, about what the performer is trying to express that, um, that just regular language wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, I mean, I think the clearest demonstration of that is just Diana Deutsch's speech to song illusion, because you can really feel there. I mean, it's the same acoustic stimulus that you just seconds ago heard unambiguously as speech. And um, it's been repeated. And, and it's now in a new category, you can just feel the different kind of orientation you have to it. And for me, that's maybe a really nice way of understanding what it is to listen to something musically, um, because it's not anything in the sounds themselves there. It's in the attitude you're bringing to it. And um, by contrasting sort of what it's like to listen to speech once that's happened to it, you can understand a lot about what it is to listen to music in general. And this morning in one of your talks, you talked about how you start your music cognition class every year that you teach and how you were trying to do a demonstration that you thought would show one thing and it year after year failed to show that one thing, which brought you to a whole new set of insights. So tell our listeners about that. 
Okay. Well, this, this, this is another way that my students just really got me in a lot of trouble. So um, at the start of this music cognition class every semester, I like to play them a piece, sort of an orchestral piece without any words, and um, ask them to just listen to it and then afterwards introspect about what was happening while they were listening. So what was going through their heads? And I always tell them, you know, it could be maybe you're hungry. Maybe you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. You know, I don't know. It could be anything. And um, my hope or you know, what I assumed would happen is that everyone had such diverse experiences that it would be kind of a cautionary tale for all of us. And we'd, we'd think, wow, look how how much of musical listening is so subjective and so idiosyncratic. That's, that's really going to you know help us understand how problematic it'll be to apply an empirical science to these kinds of experiences. And then semester after semester, you know, person after person would raise their hand and say, I, it was a shipwreck. <laughs> oh, I was on a boat and there was a pirate. <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it was at sea and there was a giant storm. Oh, big waves. And so not only were they kind of bringing these elaborate stories to what they were hearing, um, but often there were these kind of bizarre commonalities uh, to, to the stories. Uh, so I started thinking, you know, what is this kind of what I'm thinking of as a narrative mode of perception. How often are people listening to music this way? And um, what's what's causing this in the first place? <laughs> so what are you finding? Well, maybe the inspirational set of studies here was a group of studies from the 1940s by Heider and Simmel, where they you can go find these studies on YouTube, watch the videos, where they just had shapes moving around on a screen. And then uh, after people watched the shapes move around on the screen, they said, just tell us what you saw. And uh, people said, well, the triangle was in love with the circle and trying to escape from this other triangle. And, you know, they, they set up this whole story where the shapes were these characters. And um, just for our listeners, we can put that up on our Tumblr page. It's a, there's some really great um, examples of, of those kinds of little video clips. Okay, wonderful. So, you know, that's a case where you had these abstract entities and basically kind of whenever they were violating your sense of intuitive physics, that's when you tended to ascribe some intention to them. What I mean is if they didn't seem to follow uh, in principles of inertia or gravity, like you'd expect, they thought, oh, well, that's because the triangle's trying to do something. <laughs> um, so I thought maybe something similar might be going on in, in music. And maybe when music does something really unexpected that you, you can't explain any kind of ordinary physical way that like it suddenly gets loud or something, that that would be a moment where you needed to you know, impose a narrative on what you were listening to. Um, so I played people music that either featured some kind of surprising contrast of that sort or not, and found that, you know, first of all, regardless of whether I'd manipulated the contrast, people tended to hear narratives, um, but they tended to do so, you know, even more so if uh, there had been some contrast involved. And, you know, then there was just some weird stuff where for particular excerpts, you know, 70% of people thought, that there was a cat and mouse involved, you know, and, um, and in another case, uh, the majority, 80% of participants or something, um, thought that they were listening to a story that took place either in a ballroom or, or quote at a fancy dance. <laughs> um, and, and so this is puzzling. I think there's, you know, a lot going on there with enculturation. So perhaps w the environments in which people are exposed to wordless orchestral music tends to be film music. And so maybe people, when they hear music of that sort now, are just sort of applying their own kind of visual accompanying uh, story to it. Would you call that the Tom and Jerry effect? The Tom and Jerry. I, Indre, I cannot even lay claim to that fantastic coinage. That's got to be got to be all yours. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I mean, so I think an interesting thing to do next would be do a cross-cultural study so we can understand what the role of enculturation is versus what the role of this sort of maybe more intrinsic relationship between contrast and narrativization might be. 
Well, that sounds like a really exciting direction. And I just, um, we have time for one more question. I just want to ask you, what are you most excited about to work on next? What is the next big question that's driving your research? I'm really excited about the narrative stuff, not for um, itself so much, although I'm excited about that too, but um, having this sort of holistic notion that there are different modes of perception that we bring to listening. So um, Peter Janata, who's another Californian, he's at uh, Davis, has done really interesting work demonstrating that there's certain predictable pieces that we listen to uh, that, that sort of groove, right? That everybody can agree groove. And we have, they're, they're groovy. And then there are other pieces that are, that are not groovy. And we really listen to those two types of music really differently. And um, so maybe one mode of perception has to do with this sort of um, thing you do when music is groovy, which might have to do with, you know, wanting to move and, and so forth. And uh, then there might be a narrative mode of perception where you're really listening to music in terms of a story. Um, and then there might be all these other ones and it might help us think about what's happening in music listening um, in even the detailed ways that we care about if we understand these larger questions about what basic kinds of attitudes are people taking to the sound that they're experiencing. Elizabeth Helmuth Margulis, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much, Andre. Tom and Jerry effect? <laughs> yeah. So at the actual conference, um, when she presented the results, she got into a little bit more detail of what the narratives were that people were describing that they were, you know, that they had in their minds while they were listening to the music. And a number of people actually mentioned explicitly Tom and Jerry or, you know, a cat and mouse game. And uh, I, Tom and Jerry was my favorite cartoon. I love those guys. I, I can still watch them. I'm looking actually forward to introducing them to my son. But um, what made me a little bit sad is that, you know, I think it also speaks to something that uh, classical musicians should think about carefully, which is that a lot of people these days are only exposed to classical music through cartoons. Speaking of where people are exposed to classical music, you as an opera singer have been involved with bringing opera to bars and cafes and that whole conversation about show notes and how they impact the experience uh what how did you how do you sort of see it in terms of your own personal experience of seeing uh you know music in those environments and in terms of how it affects perception because you know when i go to the theater i actually really like the playbill and those notes i feel like i'm learning something as i'm going along with the show i don't necessarily have a negative experience with it yeah and i think her you know that's the the results from that study were really surprising to the vast majority of us who work in music as professionals because of course you know nobody wants to write program notes we write program notes because we think that it enhances the audience enjoyment of the music I think what, uh, what, what Lisa's work was really getting at is, you know, how program notes can make you feel under certain conditions. So, for example, in her study, she had, you know, these program notes that were relatively intellectual, um, that she was giving to people who were naive listeners who were listening to, you know, music by, say, Beethoven or some other very famous composer. And I think one of the dangers there is that when you make that listening feel like work. Now the the listeners are trying to, you know, figure out can they pick out the structural elements that they read about in the program notes, um, then it's less fun to listen to. And so maybe that's what's kind of driving her effect. But I think that um, when you 
have no experience with that type of music, just a little bit of context can make the music much more interesting, especially if it's a longer piece. Or uh, there was another study that was presented at the same conference in which they had program notes that described in a dramatic fashion what's happening in a contemporary symphonic piece that, that you know, can be kind of intractable, kind of hard on a first listen. It's a, it sounds a little bit odd. Um, and in the notes, they made sort of a dramatic uh, sense of it. So for example, they might say, you know, at the climax of the piece, think about it as a nuclear bomb going off. And what you hear, what you see is, or what you hear is like the mushroom cloud dissipating over time at the end, something like that. All of a sudden, people did report that they enjoyed the music more um, when they had this kind of dramatic program note to read beforehand. So I mean, what we do at the bars and cafes, you know, we, we make sure that our performances are, are short enough so that people can, you know, grab a drink and chat with their friends because ultimately that's what they come to the bars for. Um, and so, you know, we don't put on hour long or three hour long, you know, in a row pieces of music. And before each piece, we do just kind of give people, we set the scene so that they know what to expect doesn't come out of nowhere. And we have super titles. So if, if the, uh, if the piece is in a different language. So I think in those cases, actually, um, that kind of a context does enhance the listening. Uh, but Lisa's work does show you that you can, you know, the wrong types of program notes can actually diminish your enjoyment of the piece. Should we try to repeat the exact same podcast next week and see if the audience enjoys that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we want to put our audience through that. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of their new course, Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Math Cheat Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, City Lab, The Guardian, Grist, The Huffington Post, Medium, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith, who provided both news stories this week. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.